Continuing in chapter 3, the sovereignty of God in administration. This would be nothing new. Why should not the flood of Noah's day be repeated? And what of earthquakes? Every few years some island or some great city is swept out of existence by one of them. And what can man do? Where is the guarantee that ere long a mammoth earthquake will not destroy the whole world? Science tells us of great subterranean fires burning beneath the comparatively thin crust of our earth. How do we know but what these fires will not suddenly burst forth and consume our entire globe? Surely every reader now sees the point we're seeking to make. Deny that God is governing matter. Deny that He is upholding all things by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 And all sense of security is gone. Let us pursue a similar course of reasoning in connection with the human race. Is God governing this world of ours? Is He shaping the destinies of nations, controlling the course of empires, determining the limits of dynasties? Has He prescribed the limits of evildoers, saying, Thus far shalt thou go, and no further? Let us suppose the opposite for a moment. Let us assume that God has delivered over the helm into the hand of his creatures and see where such a supposition leads us. For the sake of argument, we will say that every man enters this world endowed with a will that is absolutely free and that it is impossible to compel or even coerce him without destroying his freedom. Let us say that every man possesses a knowledge of right and wrong, that he has the power to choose between them and that he is left entirely free to make his own choice and to go his own way. Then what? Then it follows that man is sovereign, for he does as he pleases and is the architect of his own fortune. But in such a case we can have no assurance that ere long every man will reject the good and choose the evil. In such a case we have no guarantee against the entire human race committing moral suicide. Let all divine restraints be removed and man be left absolutely free and all ethical distinctions would immediately disappear. The spirit of barbarism would prevail universally and pandemonium would reign supreme. Why not? If one nation deposes its rulers and repudiates its constitution, what is there to prevent all nations from doing the same? If little more than a century ago the streets of Paris ran with the blood of rioters, what assurance have we that before the present century closes... Every city throughout the world will not witness a similar sight. What is there to hinder earth-wide lawlessness and universal anarchy? Thus we have sought to show the need, the imperative need for God to occupy the throne, take the government upon His shoulder, and control the activities and destinies of His creatures. But man, has man, the man of faith, any difficulty in perceiving the government of God over this world? Does not the anointed eye discern, even amid much seeming confusion and chaos, the hand of the Most High controlling and shaping the affairs of men, even in the common concerns of everyday life? Take, for example, farmers and their crops. Suppose God left them to themselves. What would then prevent them, one and all, from grassing their arable lands and devoting themselves exclusively to the rearing of cattle and dairying? In such a case, there would be a worldwide famine of wheat and corn. Take the work of the post office. Suppose that everybody decided to write letters on Mondays only. Could the authorities cope with the mail on Tuesdays? And how would they occupy their time the balance of the week? And so again with the storekeepers. What would happen if every housewife did her shopping on Wednesday and stayed at home the rest of the week? But instead of such things happening, farmers in different countries both raise sufficient cattle and grow enough grain of various kinds to supply the almost incalculable needs of the human race the males are almost evenly distributed over the six days of the week, and some women shop on Monday, some on Tuesday, and so on. Do not these things clearly evidence the overruling and controlling hand of God? Having shown in brief the imperative need for God to reign over our world, let us now observe still further the fact that God does rule, actually rule, and that His government extends to and is exercised over all things and all creatures. And, firstly, God governs inanimate matter. That God governs inanimate matter, thus that inanimate matter performs His bidding and fulfills His decrees, is clearly shown on the very front piece of divine revelation. God said, let there be light, and we read, 
there was light. God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And again God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, and the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. As the psalmist declares, He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. What is stated in Genesis chapter 1 is afterwards illustrated all through the Bible. After the creation of Adam, sixteen centuries went by before ever a shower of rain upon the earth. For before Noah there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Genesis 2.6 But when the iniquities of the antediluvians had come to the full, then God said, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. And in fulfillment of this we read, In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, the seventeenth day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7. Witness God's absolute and sovereign control of inanimate matter, in connection with the plagues upon Egypt. At his bidding, the light was turned into darkness and rivers into blood. Hail fell and death came down upon the godless land of the Nile until even its haughty monarch was compelled to cry out for deliverance. Note particularly how the inspired record here emphasizes God's absolute control over the elements. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent Thunder and hail and fire ran along the ground, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail smote throughout all the land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail smote every herb of the field, and brake every tree of the field, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were. Was there no hail? Exodus 9, 23-26. The same distinction was observed in connection with the ninth plague. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Exodus 10, 21-23. The above examples are by no means isolated cases. At God's decree, fire and brimstone descended from heaven, and the cities of the plain were destroyed, and a fertile valley was converted into a loathsome sea of death. At his bidding, the waters of the Red Sea parted asunder so that the Israelites passed over dry shod. And at his word, they rolled back again and destroyed the Egyptians who were pursuing them. A word from him, and the earth opened her mouth, and Korah and his rebellious company were swallowed up. The furnace of Nebuchadnezzar was heated seven times beyond its normal temperature, and into it three of God's children were cast. But the fire did not so much as scorch their clothes, though it slew the men who cast them into it. What a demonstration of the Creator's governmental control over the elements was furnished when He became flesh and tabernacle among men. Behold Him asleep in the boat. A storm rises, the winds roar, and the waves are lashed into fury. The disciples who are with Him, fearful lest their little craft should founder, awake their master, saying, Carest thou not that we perish? And then we read, And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Mark 4.39 Mark again, the sea, at the will of its creator, bore him up upon its waves. At a word from him the fig tree withered. At his touch, disease fled instantly. The heavenly bodies are also ruled by their maker and perform his sovereign pleasure. Take two illustrations. At God's bidding, the sun went back ten degrees on the dial of Ahaz to help the weak faith of Hezekiah. In New Testament times, God caused a star to herald the incarnation of his son, the star which appeared unto the wise men of the east. This star, we are told, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was, Matthew 2.9. What a declaration of this! 
He sendeth forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool. He scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sendeth out his word and melteth them. He causeth his wind to blow, and the waters flow. Psalm 147, 15-18 The mutations of the elements are beneath God's sovereign control. It is God who withholds the rain. It is God who gives the rain when he wills, where he wills, as he wills, and on whom he wills. Weather bureaus may attempt to give forecasts of the weather, but how frequently God mocks their calculation. Sun spots, the varying activities of the planets, the appearing and disappearing of comets, to which abnormal weather is sometimes attributed, atmospheric disturbances are merely secondary causes, for behind them all is God himself. Let his word speak once more. And also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have smitten you with blasting and mildew, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword, and have taken away your horses, and have made the stink of your camps to come up into your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Amos chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Truly then God governs inanimate matter. Earth and air, fire and water, hail and snow, stormy winds and angry seas, all perform the word of his power and fulfill his sovereign pleasure. Therefore, when we complain about the weather, we are in reality murmuring against God. Secondly, God governs irrational creatures. What a striking illustration of God's government over the animal kingdom is found in Genesis 2.19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Should it be said that this occurred in Eden and took place before the fall of Adam and the consequent curse which was inflicted on every creature, then our next reference fully meets the objection. God's control of the beasts was again openly displayed at the flood. Mark how God caused to come unto Noah. Every species of living creature, of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female of fowls after their kind, of every creeping thing after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee. Genesis six nineteen and 20. All were beneath God's sovereign control. The lion of the jungle, the elephant of the forest, the bear of the polar regions, the ferocious panther, the untamable wolf, the fierce tiger, the high-soaring eagle, and the creeping crocodile. See them all in their native fierceness. And yet quietly submitting to the will of their creator and coming two by two into the ark. We referred to the plagues sent upon Egypt as illustrating God's control over inanimate matter. Let us now turn to them again to see how they demonstrate his perfect rulership over irrational creatures. At his word, the river brought forth frogs abundantly. And these frogs entered the palace of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants and Contrary to their natural instincts, they entered the beds, the ovens, and the kneading troughs. Exodus 8.13 Swarms of flies invaded the land of Egypt, but there were no flies in the land of Goshen. Exodus 8.22 Next, the cattle were stricken, and we read, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thy cattle which is in the field, upon the horses, upon the asses, upon the camels, upon the oxen, upon the sheep. There shall be a very grievous murrain. And the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt, and there shall nothing die of all that is in the children of Israel. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing in the land. And the Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died. But of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. Exodus 9, 3-6 
In like manner, God sent clouds of locusts to plague Pharaoh and his land, appointing the time of their visitation, determining the course and assigning the limits of their depredations. Angels are not the only ones who do God's bidding. The brute beasts equally perform his pleasure. The sacred ark, the ark of the covenant, is in the country of the Philistines. How is it to be brought back to its homeland? Mark the servants of God's choice and how completely they were beneath his control. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. And they said, Now therefore make a new cart, and take two milchkine, on which there hath come no yoke, and tie the kine to the cart, and bring their calves home from them, and take the ark of the Lord, and lay it upon the cart, and put the jewels of gold which ye return him for a trespass offering, in a coffer by the side thereof, and send it away that it may go. And see, if it goeth up by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh, then he hath done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. And what happened? How striking the sequel. And the kine took the straight way to the way of Beth Shemesh, and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left. First Samuel 6. Equally striking is the case of Elijah. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and hide thyself by the brook Kerith, that is before Jordan, and it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. First Kings 17.2-4 The natural instinct of these birds of prey was held in subjection, and instead of consuming the food themselves, they carried it to Jehovah's servant in his solitary retreat. Is further proof required? Then it is ready to hand. God makes a dumb ass to rebuke the prophet's madness. He sends forth two she-bears from the woods to tear forty and two of Elijah's youthful tormentors. In fulfillment of his word, he causes the dogs to lick up the blood of the wicked Jezebel. He seals the mouths of Babylon's lions when Daniel is cast into their den, though later he causes them to devour the prophet's accusers. He prepares a great fish to swallow up the disobedient Jonah, and then when his ordained hour struck, compelled it to vomit him forth on dry land. At his bidding, a fish carries a coin to Peter for tribute money, and in order to fulfill his word, he makes the cock to crow twice after Peter's denial. Thus we see that God reigns over irrational creatures, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fishes of the sea, all perform his Sovereign bidding. Thirdly, God governs the children of men. We fully appreciate the fact that this is the most difficult part of our subject, and accordingly it will be dealt with at greater length in the pages that follow. But at present we consider the fact of God's government over men in general before we attempt to deal with the problem in detail. Two alternatives confront us, and between them we are obliged to choose. Either God governs or he is governed. Either God rules or he is ruled. Either God has his way or men have theirs. And is our choice between these alternatives hard to make? Shall we say that in man we behold a creature so unruly that he is beyond God's control? Shall we say that sin has alienated the sinner so far from the thrice holy one that he is outside the pale of his jurisdiction? Or shall we say that man has been endowed with moral responsibility, and therefore God must leave him entirely free, at least during the period of his probation? Does it necessarily follow because the natural man is an outlaw against heaven, a rebel against the divine government, that God is unable to fulfill his purpose through him? We mean not merely that he may overrule the effects of the actions of evildoers, or that he will yet bring the wicked to stand before his judgment barth, so that sentence of punishment may be passed upon them. Multitudes of non-Christians believe these things. But we mean that every action of the most lawless of his subjects is entirely beneath his control. Yea, that the actor is, though unknown to himself, carrying out the secret decrees of the Most High. Was it not thus with Judas? And is it possible to select a more extreme case? 
If then the arch-rebel was performing the counsel of God, is it any greater tax upon our faith to believe the same of all rebels? Our present object is not philosophic inquiry nor metaphysical causistry, but to ascertain the teaching of Scripture upon this profound theme. To the law and the testimony, for there only can we learn of the divine government, its character, its design, its modus operandi, its scope. What then has it pleased God to reveal to us in his blessed word concerning his rule over the works of his hands, and particularly over the one who originally was made in his own image and likeness? In him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17.28. What a sweeping assertion is this. These words, be it noted, were addressed not to one of the churches of God, not to a company of saints who had reached an exalted plane of spirituality, but to a heathen audience, to those who worshipped the unknown God, and who mocked when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. And yet, to the Athenian philosophers, to the Epicureans and Stoics, the Apostle Paul did not hesitate to affirm that they lived and moved and had their being in God, which signified not only that they owed their existence and preservation to the one who made the world and all things therein, but also that their very actions were encompassed and therefore controlled by the Lord of heaven and earth. Compare Daniel 5.23, last clause. The disposings of the heart and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. See Proverbs 16.1. Mark that the above declaration is of general application. It is of man, not simply of believers, that this is predicated. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. Proverbs 16.9. If the Lord directs the steps of a man, is it not proof that he is being controlled or governed by God? Again, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Proverbs 19.21 Can this mean anything less than no matter what man may desire and plan, it is the will of his Maker which is executed? As an illustration, take the rich fool. The devices of his heart are made known to us, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Such were the devices of his heart. Nevertheless, it was the counsel of the Lord that stood. The I-wills of the rich man came to naught. For God said unto him, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Luke chapter 12. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 What could be more explicit? Out of the heart are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23.7 If then the heart is in the hand of the Lord, and if he turneth it whithersoever he will, then is it not clear that men, yea, governors and rulers, and so all men, are completely beneath the governmental control of the Almighty. No limitations must be placed upon the above declarations to insist that some men at least do thwart God's will and overturn his counsels is to repudiate other scriptures equally explicit. Weigh well the following, but he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Job 23.13 the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations, Psalm 33.11. There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against the Lord, Proverbs 21.30. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Isaiah 14.27 Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 46.9 and 10 there is no ambiguity in these passages. They affirm in the most unequivocal and unqualified terms that it is impossible 
to bring to naught the purpose of Jehovah. We read the scriptures in vain if we fail to discover that the actions of men, evil men as well as good, are governed by the Lord God. Nimrod and his fellows determined to erect the Tower of Babel, but ere their task was accomplished, God frustrated their plans. God called Abraham alone, Isaiah 51, 2, but his kinfolk accompanied him as he left Ur the Chaldees. Was then the will of the Lord defeated? Nay, verily. Mark the sequel. Terah died before Canaan was reached, Genesis 11:31. and though Lot accompanied his uncle into the land of promise, he soon separated from him and settled down in Sodom. Jacob was the child to whom the inheritance was promised, and though Isaac thought to reverse Jehovah's decree and bestow the blessing upon Esau, his efforts came to naught. Esau again swore vengeance upon Jacob, but when next they met, they wept for joy instead of fighting in hate. The brethren of Joseph determined his destruction, but their evil counsels were overthrown. Pharaoh refused to let Israel carry out the instructions of Jehovah, and perished in the Red Sea for his pains. Balak hired Balaam to curse the Israelites, but God compelled him to bless them. Haman erected a gallows from Mordecai, but was hanged upon it himself. Jonah resisted the revealed will of God, but what became of his efforts? Ah, the heathen may rage, and the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth may set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 2, 1 through 3. But is the great God perturbed or disturbed by the rebellion of his puny creatures? No, indeed. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Verse 4. He is infinitely exalted above all, and the greatest confederacies of earth's pawns, and their most extensive and vigorous preparations to defeat his purpose, are in his sight altogether puerile. He looks upon their puny efforts not only without any alarm, but he laughs at their folly. He treats their impotency with derision. He knows that he can crush them like moths when he pleases, or consume them in a moment with the breath of his mouth. Ah, it is but a vain thing for the potsherds of the earth to strive with the glorious majesty of heaven. Such is our God. Worship ye him. Mark, too, the sovereignty which God displayed in his dealings with men. Moses, who was slow of speech, and not Aaron, his elder brother, who was not slow of speech, was the one chosen to be his ambassador in demanding from Egypt's monarch the release of his oppressed people. Moses, again, though greatly beloved, utters one hasty word and was excluded from Canaan, whereas Elijah passionately murmurs and suffers but a mild rebuke and was afterward taken to heaven without seeing death. Uzzah merely touched the ark and was instantly slain, whereas the Philistines carried it off in insulting triumph and suffered no immediate harm. Displays of grace which would have brought a doomed Sodom to repentance failed to move and highly privileged Capernaum. Mighty works which would have subdued Tyre and Sidon left the upbraided cities of Galilee under the curse of a rejected gospel. If they would have prevailed over the former, why were they not wrought there? If they proved ineffectual to deliver the latter, then why perform them? What exhibitions are these of the sovereign will of the Most High? God governs angels, both good and evil angels. The angels are God's servants, His messengers, His chariots. They ever hearken to the word of His mouth and do His commands. And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it, and as He was destroying... The Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword again into the sheath thereof. First Chronicles 21, 15, and 27. Many other scriptures might be cited to show that the angels are in subjection to the will of their Creator, and perform his bidding. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod. Acts 12.11 And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Revelation 22.6 So it will be when our Lord returns. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom 
all things that offend and them which do iniquity, Matthew 13:41. Again we read, He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, Matthew 24:31. The same is true of evil spirits. They, too, fulfill God's sovereign decrees. An evil spirit is sent by God to stir up rebellion in the camp of Abimelech. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, which aided him in the killing of his brethren. Judges 9.23 Another evil spirit he sent to be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. 1 Kings 22.23 And yet another was sent by the Lord to trouble Saul. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. 1 Samuel 16.14 So too in the New Testament a whole legion of the demons go not out of their victim until the Lord gave them permission to enter the herd of swine. It is clear from Scripture then that the angels, good and evil, are under God's control, and willingly or unwillingly carry out God's purpose. Yea, Satan himself is absolutely subject to God's control. When arraigned in Eden, he listened to the awful sentence, but answered not a word. He was unable to touch Job until God granted him leave. So, too, he had to gain our Lord's consent before he could sift Peter. When Christ commanded him to depart, get thee hence, Satan, we read, Then the devil leaveth him, Matthew 4.11. And in the end, he will be cast into the lake of fire which has been prepared for him and his angels. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. His government is exercised over inanimate matter, over the brute beasts, over the children of men, over angels, good and evil, and over Satan himself. No revolving world, no shining of star, no storm, no creature moves, no actions of men, no errands of angels, no deeds of devil, Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. Here is a foundation for faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind faith, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord God Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to His own good pleasure and for His own eternal glory. Ten thousand ages, ere the skies were into motion, brought all the long years and worlds to come, stood present to his thought. There's not a sparrow nor a worm but's found in his decrees. He raises monarchs to their thrones, and sinks as he may please. Chapter 4. The Sovereignty of God in Salvation Romans 11.33 Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Jonah 2.9 Salvation is of the Lord. But the Lord does not save all. Why not? He does save some. Then if he saves some, why not others? Is it because they are too sinful and depraved? No, for the apostle wrote, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1.15 Therefore, if God saved the chief of sinners, none are excluded because of their depravity. Why then does God not save all? Is it because some are too stony-hearted to be one? No, because of the most stony-hearted people of all, it is written that God will yet take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 11:19. Then is it because some are so stubborn, so intractable, so defiant that God is unable to woo them to himself? Before we answer this question, let us ask another. Let us appeal to the experience of the Christian reader. Friend, was there not a time when you walked in the counsel of the ungodly, stood in the way of sinners, sat in the seat of the scorners, and with them said, We will not have this man to reign over us, Luke 19.14. Was there not a time when you would not come to Christ that you might have life, John 5.40? Yea, was there not a time when you mingled your voice with those who said unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways? What is the Almighty that we should serve him, and what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Job 21, 
14 and 15, with shamed face you have to acknowledge that there was. But how is it that all is now changed? What was it that brought you from haughty self-sufficiency to a humble suppliant, from one that was at enmity with God to one that is at peace with Him, from lawlessness to subjection, from hate to love? And as one born of the Spirit, you will readily reply, By the grace of God I am what I am. 1 Corinthians 15.10 Then do you not see that it is due to no lack of power in God, nor to his refusal to coerce man, that other rebels are not saved too? If God was able to subdue your will and win your heart, and that without interfering with your moral responsibility, then is he not able to do the same for others? Assuredly he is. Then how inconsistent, how illogical, how foolish of you in seeking to account for the present course of the wicked and their ultimate fate, fate to argue that God is unable to save them, that they will not let him. Do you say, but the time came when I was willing, willing to receive Christ as my Savior? True. But it was the Lord who made you willing, Psalm 110.3, Philippians 2.13. Why then does he not make all sinners willing? Why, but for the fact that he is sovereign and does as he pleases? But to return to our opening inquiry, why is it that all are not saved, particularly all who hear the gospel? Do you still answer because the majority refuse to believe? Well, that is true, but it is only a part of the truth. It is the truth from the human side, but there is a divine side too, and this side of the truth needs to be stressed or God will be robbed of his glory. The unsaved are lost because they refuse to believe. The others are saved because they believe. But why do these others believe? What is it that causes them to put their trust in Christ? Is it because they are more intelligent than their fellows and quicker to discern their need of salvation? Perish the thought. Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7, It is God himself who maketh the difference between the elect and the non-elect, for of his own it is written, and we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. That we may know him that is true. 1 John 5, 20. Faith is God's gift, and all men have not faith. 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. Therefore we see that God does not bestow this gift upon all. Upon whom then does God bestow this saving favor? And we answer, upon his own elect, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 13.48 Hence it is that we read of the faith of God's elect. Titus 1.1 But is God partial in the distribution of his favors? Has he not the right to be partial? Are there still some who murmur against the goodman of the house? Then in his own words we supply uh, a reply. Is not it lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Matthew twenty fifteen. God is sovereign in the bestowment of his gifts, both in the natural and in the spiritual realms. So much then for a general statement, and now to particularize Firstly, the sovereignty of God, the Father in salvation. Perhaps the one scripture which most emphatically of all asserts the absolute sovereignty of God in connection with his determining the destiny of his creatures is the ninth chapter of Romans. We shall not attempt to review here the entire chapter, but will confine ourselves to verses 21 through 23. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? These verses represent fallen mankind as inert and as impotent as a lump of lifeless clay. 
The scripture evidences that there is no difference in themselves between the elect and the non-elect. They are clay of the same lump, which agrees with Ephesians 2.3, where we are told that all are by nature children of wrath. It teaches us that the ultimate destiny of every individual is decided by the will of God. And blessed it is that such be the case. If it were left to our wills, the ultimate destination of us all would be the lake of fire. It declares that God himself does make a difference in the respective destinations to which he assigns his creatures. For one vessel is made unto honor and another unto dishonor. Some are vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Others are vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. We readily acknowledge that it is very humbling to the proud heart of the creature to behold all mankind in the hand of God as the clay is in the potter's hand. Yet this is precisely how the scriptures of truth present the case. In this day of human boasting, intellectual pride, and the deification of man, it needs to be insisted upon that the potter forms his vessels for himself. Let man strive with his maker as he will. The fact remains that he is nothing more than clay in the heavenly potter's hands. And while we know that God will deal justly with his creatures, that the judge of all the earth will do right, Nevertheless, he shapes his vessels for his own purpose and according to his own pleasure. God claims the indisputable right to do as he wills with his own. Not only has God the right to do as he wills with creatures of his own hands, but he exercises this right, and nowhere is that seen more plainly than in his predestinating grace. Before the foundation of the world, God made a choice a selection, an election. Before his omniscient eye stood the whole of Adam's race, and from it he singled out a people and predestinated them unto the adoption of children, predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his Son, ordained them unto eternal life. Many are the scriptures which set forth this blessed truth, seven of which will now engage our attention. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Acts 13:48. Every artifice of human ingenuity has been employed to blunt the sharp edge of this scripture and to explain away the obvious meaning of these words. But it has been employed in vain, though nothing will ever be able to reconcile this and similar passages to the mind of the natural man. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Here we learn four things. First, that believing is the consequence and not the cause of God's decree. Second, that a limited number only are ordained to eternal life. For if all men without exception were thus ordained by God, then the words as many as are a meaningless qualification. Third, that this ordination of God is not to mere external privileges, but to eternal life, not to service, but to salvation itself. Fourth, that all, as many as, not one less, who are thus ordained by God to eternal life, will most certainly believe. The comments of the beloved Spurgeon on the above passage are well worthy of our notice, said he. Attempts have been made to prove that these words do not teach predestination, but these attempts so clearly do violence to language that I shall not waste time in answering them. I read as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And I shall not twist the text, but shall glorify the grace of God by ascribing to that grace the faith of every man. Is it not God who gives the disposition to believe? If men are disposed to have eternal life, does not he in every case dispose them? Is it wrong for God to give grace? If it be right for him to give it, is it wrong for him to purpose to give it? Would you have him give it by accident? If it is right for him to purpose to give grace today, it was right for him to purpose it before today, and since he changes not from eternity. Unquote. Even so then, at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. Romans 11, 5 and 6, the words even so at the beginning of this quotation refer us to the previous verse where we are told, 
I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal. Note particularly the word left or reserved. In the days of Elijah there were seven thousand, a small minority, who were divinely preserved from idolatry and brought to the knowledge of the true God. This preservation and illumination was not from anything in themselves, but solely by God's special influence and agency. How highly favored such individuals were to be thus reserved by God. Now, says the apostle, just as there was a remnant in Elijah's days left by God, even so there is in this present dispensation a remnant according to the election of grace, Romans 11.5. Here the cause of election is traced back to its source. The basis upon which God elected this remnant was not faith foreseen in them, because a choice founded upon the foresight of good works or faith is just as truly made on the ground of works as any choice can be, and in such a case it would not be of grace. For, says the apostle, if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace which means that grace and works are opposites. They have nothing in common and will no more mingle than will oil and water. Thus, the idea of inherent good foreseen in those chosen or of anything meritorious performed by them is rigidly excluded. A remnant according to the election of grace signifies an unconditional choice resulting from the sovereign favor of God. In a word, it is absolutely a gratuitous election. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 Three times over in this passage, reference is made to God's choice, and choice necessarily supposes a selection, the taking of some and the leaving of others. The chooser here, the chooser here, is God himself, as said the Lord Jesus to the apostles, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. John 15:16. The number chosen is strictly defined. Not many wise after the flesh, not many noble, etc., which agrees with Matthew 20, verse 16. So the last shall be first, and the first last, for many be called, but few chosen. So much then for the fact of God's choice. Now, mark the objects of his choice. The ones spoken of above are chosen of God. The weak things of the world, base things of the world, and things which are despised, but why? To demonstrate and magnify his grace, God's ways as well as his thoughts are utterly at variance with man's. The carnal mind would have supposed that a selection had been made from the ranks of the opulent and influential, the amiable and cultured, so that Christianity might have won the approval and applause of the world by its pageantry and fleshly glory. <laughs> but that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Luke 15, Luke 16:15. God chooses the base things. He did so in the Old Testament times. The nation which he singled out to be the depository of his holy oracles and the channel through which the promised seed should come was not the ancient Egyptians, the imposing Babylonians, nor the highly civilized and cultured Greeks. No, that people upon whom Jehovah set his love and regarded as the apple of his eye were the despised nomadic Hebrews. So it was when our Lord tabernacled among men. The ones whom he took into favored intimacy with himself and commissioned to go forth as his ambassadors were, for the most part, unlettered fishermen. And so it has been ever since. So it is today. At the present rates of increase, it will not be long before it is manifested that the Lord has more in despised China, who are really his, than he has in the highly favored USA, more among the uncivilized blacks of Africa than he has in cultured Germany. And the purpose of God's choice, the raison d'etre of the selection he has made, is that no flesh should glory in his presence, there being nothing whatever in the objects of his choice which should entitle them to his special favors, then all the praise will be freely ascribed to the exceeding riches of his manifold grace. 
And thus far the reading of The Sovereignty of God, The Sovereignty of God in Salvation, Chapter 4, the book by Arthur W. Pink. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.